All right. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Clark Rockfall, and welcome to the ACB 2021 Virtual Conference and Convention 60th Birthday Extravaganza main event for the opening ceremony of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. So we have a great program here for you this evening. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, the co-chair of the Audio Description Project, as well as the immediate past president of the American Council of the Blind, Kim Charlson. Kim, how are you doing this evening? I am excited about this program and about what's coming this evening. Um, this is so exciting and groundbreaking, too. I love to be part of groundbreaking events. So it's it's a first of its kind. We're going to have hundreds and hundreds of blind people listening all over the country and having the opening ceremony audio described this evening is really going to be fantastic. Yes, it is. And we'll be thanking them all throughout the night, but this would not be possible without our partners at Comcast NBC, um, as well as our describers and all describers, whether that's Dr. Joel Snyder, who helped describe the U.S. Association of Blind Athletes video that we'll have later on, and the folks at Descriptive Video Works, who will be providing live description in the primetime airings of the opening and closing ceremony and everything in between in primetime. Thank you all so much for making this possible. We are so excited. We've got some terrific interviews to share with you this evening, just as a spotlight. We're going to be hearing from the lead engineer um, at NBC, behind the scenes, how audio description gets put together and broadcast from Japan into our homes and into our ears so we can enjoy the programming. And we'll be hearing from the, uh, one of the two audio describers and from an Olympic athlete. We'll talk more about that later. Several Paralympic athletes, and we'll be presenting an award. So it's a very filled program and agenda with really interesting content. So I think you're going to be very excited to hear it. And just like millions of other Americans, ACB, we are ready to tune in to the Olympics with our family, our friends, our community. I know I have my red, white, and blue silk belt on from the London 2012 Paralympic Games. I'm wearing my stars and stripes, high top Chuck Taylors. So Kim, I think we're ready to do this. We got a full show. We've got to jump in here. I think um, that who do we have like first, plan. Kim? We are going to hear first from Tim Canary, who's lead engineer and vice president at NBC. And Tim is going to give us a behind the scenes view of creating and delivering audio description, something I think you'll really learn a lot from. So let's go ahead and watch our first video and hear from Tim Canary. Now, Clark and I would like to um, introduce all of you to Tim Canary, who is the Vice President of Engineering for NBC Sports. Welcome, Tim, to um, our pre-show Olympic opening ceremony program this evening. Thank you, Kim. We wanted to talk a little bit with you about your role at NBC and with the Olympics and audio description. Oftentimes, we don't really think about the 
people behind the scenes who are making audio description possible for us to have access to television and especially special events like the opening ceremony of the Olympics. So we would love to um, learn a little bit more about what you do at NBC and how and what kind of experience you have with audio description and how that ties into what you do every day. Sure. Well, um, for the Olympics, I um, oversee the U.S. side of the engineering uh, operation um, here in the Stanford facility where we produce a lot of our content. Um, and we also um, produce the audio description uh, call from one of our announce booths. Um, you know, to, to look at my experience with it, if I go back to, to 2016 during the Rio games, um, I knew nothing about it. Um, and I got a call that we were going to do this, um, this new thing called, well, at the time they were saying VDS, DVS. It seemed to have a lot of different names, but in the end it was audio description. Um, so my experience really started at that point in 2016. Um, and I honestly didn't know much about it or how we were going to do it. Um, so that was part of it for us. Um, not, not that we invented it, but we invented the way we were going to do it. Um, and to be honest, um, I think we've refined it quite a bit since 2016 um, with a lot of feedback from, from consumers about how we could improve it. And Tim, will you share with us, to, just at a, a high level, what goes into, from a, a technical standpoint, in producing the Olympic Games for the U.S. television market? Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a loaded question. There's a lot, a lot of pieces there. Um, well, when you look at the, the, the really big picture view and you step way back, we started planning for the Tokyo Games um, certainly in 2016 time period. We were aware that there's a summer games in 2020. Um, and we start planning for the games years and years in advance. Um, so the planning ends up being what venues are we going to cover? How are we going to cover those venues? What venues we cover with our own cameras? What venues we cover with cameras and material from what we call the host broadcaster that feeds content out to the to the to the entire the entire world essentially. Um, but our our producers look at how we want to do things, and, and in turn, we look at how much of that content we want to produce here in the U.S. and how much we want to produce in country. Um, so it really starts with years and years of planning, um, and it's everything from budgeting through to technical planning of how we're going to do things. And overall, it's on the U.S. side and the side in country, you're talking about 3,000-ish people that are involved in producing the game. So here in Stanford this year, I roughly will have about um, 1,400 people. Well, the people also, due to COVID, um, we've relocated people to New York, to Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, to Miami, and then also to our Sky facilities in the UK. Um, previously, that all would have been here in Stanford, but it, it gave us an opportunity to spread things out for social distancing. And then there's an additional 1,800 people or so in Tokyo that are working with us. It's really impressive what you all do, and certainly here... Uh, you know, a, a year delayed from the 2020 games, 
here in 2021 in, in Tokyo. It's just impressive to think of that uh, breadth and scope of work that it takes to produce the games. And now knowing that there is expanded coverage of the Olympics and following the Olympics a month later in, in August, the Paralympic Games with audio description, more audio description as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, and for, for me personally, it's, it's been very interesting to see that evolve um, for, for myself of how we're going to do this and how, how we work with our editorial um, producers to, to make the audio description better. Um, you know, I remember early on, just wondering, you know, was, were we hitting the mark? Where was the audio description working for the consumers? And we, we started getting feedback and, and that was very, very valuable to us in terms of some of the technology that we employed um, and how we made that audio mix uh, to enhance the presentation overall. Tim, can you, um, can you help us understand the, I guess the, the path of audio description. So I'm assuming that you mentioned there's a feed from Tokyo that you receive at the um, headquarters facility. And then you take that and you start to add components to it. But can you kind of walk us through what exactly you're doing and then how that broadcasts out and sure. sort of what's happening to that signal as it travels to the television set in my home in Watertown, Massachusetts? Sure, sure. So if you, you start with your, your program in Tokyo, now um, opening ceremonies is a little different. There's a um, a, a live opening, and then there's a the the network primetime opening. So, network primetime opening is is not live; it's it's recorded and cut down. So that that particular show um, is fed in segments into New York, where uh, at the right time they they play it out um, to the to the audience across the U.S., which is where we have rights to. While they're playing that that um, primetime opening show out, what we get is we get a feed from that control room into uh, an announce booth where we have uh, a, a, a voiceover talent who describes what they're seeing. Um, and we basically take their audio um, and they're also hearing the program, by the way, they hear the announcers, they hear the fans when, when there are fans and they hear all the games and everything else going on, all the natural sounds so they, they are understanding what's happening from the broader production. We take their audio, we send that back to New York, where the release control room is. The New York control room, there's a second person mixing just for audio description. And they will take all the natural sounds, the sounds of um, the announcers on site, any talent, and they will mix it in with the audio description audio that we provide to them. So... One of the big challenges that we have is uh, the talent here. They will speak when there's gaps in the program. Sometimes they don't always know when an announcer is going to say something. Um, so that that initially presented the biggest challenge that they never knew when an announcer was going to certainly speak because sometimes their picture wasn't on that they could see them. So what we've in, implemented with with a lot of feedback from from consumers of our product was. Uh, essentially automatic ducking of audio. 
And, and that was really a game changer for the end product. Whereas when the audio description talent is speaking, the main program um, level ducks down. So um, in the case of Mike Tarico, if, if he's going to start speaking, it would reduce his level automatically. And then they would see, okay, Mike's speaking, and they would kind of lay out, and then Mike's audio would kind of naturally come back up automatically. So that was a really, really big, um, big advantage. Whereas in from the, my perspective, when I saw and listened to what we did for the Rio games, there was a little bit too much overlap between the descriptive audio and the on-camera talent, um, which tended to be a little distracting. Um, I think we've corrected that and it's gotten much better. So it, essentially the path is from the host country through New York. We take a feed into Stanford, add some audio, we send that back. And then the New York, New York control room will make a custom mix, which then gets put on a special channel, which through the distribution process uh, gets sent out to, um, to the consumer on what we call the SAP or the secondary audio program channel. And Tim, you talked about the the individual at the at the end of the production process uh, mixing the audio. Uh, not every not every company does that. Uh, will you share with us why why does NBC uh, believe it's so important to have that additional audio mixing of the, the you know the broadcast audio as well as the audio description audio? Why is it necessary to have someone mixing the the audio tracks? Well, I guess if if we didn't have a person mixing in the part of the regular broadcast audio, then we think that the audio description product would lose too much of the natural sounds, too much of the energy and feel of the Olympics. You wouldn't have necessarily the music. You wouldn't have all the, the noises, um, you know, if it's, um, I'm trying to think, oh, well, say just the noises in, in swimming, the splashes and things like that, or the ball being kicked in soccer. Um, if, if it were just descriptive audio, you really wouldn't get a sense of everything else that's going on in the program. And I think by having that, literally a custom mix for that, I, I, I can imagine that the, the richness of, of hearing that is, hopefully enhanced to a point that it makes it that much better. Um, you know, I, I honestly don't know how we would do it without someone mixing that at, at a, at a better level, having some of the normal program audio mixed into the descriptive audio, I, I, I think is key to making it uh, work well. Now I will say that we do apply some automation to that in, in the form of ducking so that the audio descriptive talent is not talking over the broadcast talent um, too much um, because that that's really impossible for a human to know when that's going to happen all the time. But I, I I think that's really why we do it because I think it makes a better end product. I think you've uh, NBC in particular has done a tremendous job of really enhancing the quality of the audio description listening experience and, and taking into consideration that what that listening experience is like, because you're, you're spot on when, when you talk about wanting to hear the ambient sounds, that those are so important. And, you know, we pick up a lot of information by hearing the sounds that are happening and to have those masked in any way 
does really reduce your your um, interpretation and your enjoyment of whatever the the session is. So, um, you know, my commendations to to you and your engineers for for taking that extra step and really thinking about it and making it a, a full, rich listening experience for the end audio description consumer, because it really it really has made a difference in not just the sporting events, but also the other um, live audio described events that NBC has done, like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and, and most recently, the, um, the fireworks on the 4th of July, mm. the same kind of experience. You know, you want to hear the the boom, boom, booms, and the the crowd sure. sounds, and that kind of thing, as as part of that. So, you've you've done a great job with that. Well, and I I haven't listened to uh, descriptive audio that's not been mixed in with natural sounds. I I can only imagine that it must not be nearly as as rich and interesting to listen to. Um, with without those natural sounds, that the the amount of additional information and color that it brings um, to to hearing that, I I can only imagine that it, it it's almost like a night and day experience, really. Absolutely, um, I know I'm excited, and many of our members are excited this year for the audio description during the opening ceremony, as well as the the prime time broadcast. Whether folks are watching over the air on their local affiliate or through their, you know, their, their cable provider. But there are so many ways, Tim, to, to watch and engage with Comcast, NBC, and the Olympics this year, uh, not only on the, the various other cable channels, um, but also on the, the Peacock streaming service, correct? Right, right. And, and I, I can't speak to all of where Peacock is, is applying that, but I, I know that that, that is a, a high priority for, for them as well, um, as that service has is, is grown in a tremendous manner for sure. And, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the, the support for, for all this is it's NBC obviously is a key piece of it, but Comcast has been a, a huge proponent um, and very much in, in the, in the realm of, pushing us to do this um, and they care about it. They, they want it to be good. So that's definitely a, a big piece of the whole, the whole puzzle. That's great. And can, I think um, Clark alluded to this, but the, it looks to me like um, the primetime coverage each evening from, is it eight to 11 is going to be audio described. I believe so. I just have to refer to my my chart here and just make sure that I don't miss misspeak. But yes, it is yes eight eight to I think eleven thirty. Oh wow! And we have a, a show we call um, uh, Prime West, um, and through the West Coast, and then uh, Prime Plus. So um, there's a, a lot of uh, audio description on the broadcast. That's that's grown. Um, tremendously since the Rio games, for sure. Mm-hmm. That's and, really a, a tremendous commitment. And, and, you know, we truly do appreciate it. It's fantastic. Looking forward to it. And it, another aspect of the, the Comcast NBC coverage of the games that has grown 
is the coverage of the Paralympic Games, which will be August 24th through September 5th. In addition to expanded coverage of the Paralympic Games, there'll be audio description available in those primetime sessions as well. Correct, Tim? Yes, as, as well as our, our um, sessions that are on, on cable TV. So that's, that's equally as exciting that it's expanded there as well. Um, and the, the Paralympics um, have, have certainly grown as well in terms of the amount of coverage, which is, which is um, a very positive development over time. That's incredibly positive. And I I realized that myself just last Olympics when they were covered some and just the the hearing people talk about how they had watched the Paralympics and um, and and just the kind of the 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 awe and the admiration that, that the general public had for people who perhaps previously they had thought people with disabilities couldn't do anything. And then they watched them competing at a, at a, you know, an expert level, um, the elite athlete level where, you know, most of us will never get there. Um, it was, it was just so enlightening and, and did so much awareness for, you know, the capabilities and abilities of people with disabilities that um, to have that, that now prime time coverage of the Paralympics is, is huge. So again, that's kudos to NBC universal and Comcast for all of that. Yes. Well, and you, you talked a little bit about the audio mixing and, you know, one thing I kind of left out of the explanation is the reason that in back in New York, that they only take the voices is that it's for latency. So um, the latency to get from New York to here for the picture and then the voices to get back is, is pretty small, but if you had the broadcast audio out of sync with the audio description, mm-hmm. if someone was flipping back and forth between the channels, there would be a lot of latency, which we, that's why we just send the voice back to New York and it gets mixed back into the original program is to avoid that, that latency in, in that, in that process. Good point. So, yeah. You know, and the other, the other piece that has been key is, is I think having the right talent. Um, to to describe it, um, we've been fortunate since I've been doing it to to have the same talent every every year for the Olympics, um, and it's it, it's good to see the the same people that have done it that have worked to refine it. But it, it's a skill. I I've sat in a booth and when we test and we'll um, say a few words, but it's it's it can be very difficult to to describe it with a richness that, that the professional audio description talent um, can bring to bear on the product for sure. So that that part has been very, very good for us. We're fortunate. We're going to be interviewing um, shortly after your interview here, um, uh, Norma Jean Wick, who is one of the two um, audio describers that will be covering the Olympics with audio description. So we're really pleased to, be able to profile her as well on our program this evening. Absolutely. And I first met her in 2016 and again in 18 and been on conference calls with her recently. So it'll be good to work with her again. It's very, very, very polished about how, how she goes about describing it and genuinely cares about the end product, which is really great. And, and certainly like the work of your team at, 
Comcast and NBC, uh, being able to learn from previous years and have that consistency and that growth, I, I'm sure has helped Norma Jean and her partner provide better, more, like you said, rich and descriptive audio descriptions of the games as well. Right, right. And absolutely. And it's, again, they, they want it to be right. The producer wants it to be right. The technicians and we, we want to make a product that's consumable and, and productive for, for everybody, really. So we definitely have always worked to improve upon it. Um, so <clears throat> now when I said we first did it in Rio, um, I wondered <clears throat> what it was, how we were going to do it. Now it's just how do we refine it and make it better. That's great. Well, Tim, thank you so much for spending some time and helping us to understand a little better the the process of audio description and how it's created and what the the network has to do to um, to get it to us so that we have that accessibility that we truly value. So thank you to you and your team at NBC and all of the behind the scenes people that are working so hard to bring the Olympics and all of its different capacities, but particularly the audio description to all of the blind consumers in the United States who are going to benefit tremendously from this added accessibility to this year's Olympics. So thank you to you and Comcast and NBC Universal for all you do. It's greatly appreciated. Well, thank you. We, we're, we're happy to do it. And I, I appreciate you spending the time with me, Kim and Clark. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much to Tim Canary from NBC, NBC Sports sharing with us uh, just what goes on on the back end to get audio description produced and to the consumers. I'm sure that's no surprise uh, to the folks at ACB Media Network with the great work that they've been doing here this week at our virtual conference and convention. But Kim, what stood out to you from Tim's remarks? Well, I think it was just so enlightening to really just get a peek into what happens behind the scenes. And obviously what stood out the most to me was the the care and the professionalism behind what the NBC team is doing to create the absolute best quality audio description they can deliver. And that commitment really was clear through what Tim had to say to us. I I couldn't agree more. I know as a a Paralympian and as a a lover of everything uh, Olympic and Paralympic spirit and competitiveness, it's, it's just awesome to hear what professionals. So Tim talked about uh, our next guest, Norma Jean Wick, being a professional on the audio describer side, but hearing about the professionalism that they bring to the broadcast and ensuring that consumers have multiple ways and platforms to enjoy and consume the audio description uh, here for the Tokyo Olympics, as well as Paralympics, which we'll hear about more later from some of our guests it, it just brings a smile to my face, Kim. Well, it's pretty exciting. And, and it's really a thrill for me to be doing this show with you because you are a Paralympian. And that's so impressive to me. I mean, if you, if you didn't already <laughs> wow me with your, your um, excellence in the realm of governmental affairs, 
you know, I'm super impressed with the fact that you're a Paralympian. So that's really exciting. You, you know, there are certainly uh, related traits between being <laughs> a, a successful athlete as, as well as being successful in, in life and certainly in advocacy. Uh, geez, tenacity, uh, that dogged pursuit of excellence. Uh, we've seen that here this week with the advocacy work of our ACB members. And, and certainly this would not be possible if not for the advocacy of ACB in passing the 21st Century Communications Video Accessibility Act, which by the way, does not address live audio description, but then also the, the pursuit of excellence, working and collaborating with our partners and to bring audio description to more people through more means. Uh, that's, geez, it's just what we do, right, Kim? That's what we it have what, to do. It is what we do, and you're so right. It really does help and contribute to that, that excellence that ACB brings to all of its advocacy, but especially in the area of audio description. And I'm so proud to be a part of that and be able to, um, to see how far we've come even in the last five years, but when you step back 10 years to the passage of the CVAA, it's, it's really amazing where things have come. And uh, I think what we wanna do next is share with you um, the interview we did with Norma Jean Wick, who is one of the two um, audio describers who will be delivering content for us during the 2020 or 2021 Olympics in Tokyo. So why don't we listen to that interview? It's really a very, very good profile of her and her commitment to audio description. So pleased that we have the opportunity to talk with Norma Jean Wick, who may be a familiar name to some of our listeners and viewers today, because um, Norma has done some uh, work with audio description and the Olympics. And she is going to be describing um, the 2021 Olympics from Tokyo. So Norma, it's a pleasure to have you here and to learn a little bit more about you as a describer, but also as a describer of the live um, audio description of the Olympics this year. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm so excited that we're actually at this point. I think they're going to happen, which is pretty amazing, considering what a challenging almost two years it's been. So it's really exciting. And myself and my colleague, Tony Ambrosio, and our producer, Monica Downer, are in the throes now of getting ourselves ready for another really exciting Olympics. Well, we've just learned a little bit about what NBC has to do to make audio description a reality for the end blind consumer who is out there listening and enjoying what, what your art provides for us. But we wanna delve a little deeper, find out a little bit more about you and how you prepare for doing live audio description. So let's find, a, let's find out a little bit about you and your background first before we start talking about Olympics coverage and how you're gonna handle that. So tell us just a little bit about Norma, Norma Jean and the, uh, the, uh, the art of audio description and how you became a, a describer and then how you got into the side of doing sports audio description. 
Well, I have a background uh, in both news and sports, but actually I, I wanted sports was my, um, that was my chosen profession, but this was back in the eighties and women were not entirely welcome on the scene yet. It was still hard to find a place, um, but I started in radio and then I, I sort of, uh, was the de facto sports reporter as well as doing on-air stuff on radio. So I would do a split shift, get up at four o'clock in the morning, drive to the station, do the morning drive, rush down to the press conference, come back, file sporting reports and stuff, and then do the afternoon drive. So I did that for a while and um, ended up working for the CFL in media relations and then got a call to do sports on television. Um, so I ended up doing sort of interim hosting and reporting, but again, like I said, you know, wasn't getting all the experience that I wanted. So I took a job in news because I had a background in criminal law. This is a very long tale. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so anyways, I did that until we got a, um, NBA franchise in Vancouver which was where I was living at the time, Vancouver, British Columbia. So when the Grizzlies came, I had um, my uh, writer at, at Sports Page, the sports department at uh, the station that I worked with, uh, invited me to come and work for the Grizzlies. So that started me on a 12-year uh, journey in the NBA, working for both the Grizzlies. And then when they moved to Memphis, I worked for the Raptors. I was a host, a sideline reporter, I produced features and content for specials and things like that. So I did that. And then um, in Toronto, I ended up teaching at a school. So teaching broadcasting at a sports broadcasting school, a private school. And so I taught features. I taught production, um, anchoring, reporting. So a variety of things. And I really loved it. And at the time, I was working with Jim Van Horn, who is sort of a, a, uh, an iconic figure here in Canada in sports. And um, he worked at the school as well. And he got me interested in doing live description for Blue Jays baseball. So we started doing Blue Jays baseball games together. Um, and then um, he and I ended up doing Rio together through descriptive video works. And we had done some Paralympics actually before we did the Olympics. Um, and then once we did Rio for NBC, we just continued on. Last year, I did Pyeongchang with Tony Ambrosio. And this year, Tony and I are back together again for Tokyo. So um, kind of a long meandering history, but it mostly revolved around sports. So um, I was also an athlete growing up as well. So it's in my heart. I think even people who who aren't necessarily sports fans are fascinated with the Olympics and sit down and watch them every night while they're while they're taking place because there's there's more than just the sporting event there's the stories about the athletes and the the sacrifices that the athletes have to make to get to that level of competition that they have reached in their um, athletic careers and there's so many cases of you know overcoming obstacles and just incredibly motivating inspiring stories that come out for for people's desires and goals and lifetime goals that are yeah. just amazing 
Yeah, the focal point obviously is on the athletes and the games. Um, and as you say, there are many vignettes. There's a lot of storytelling. And that's what makes it so engrossing and engaging is the stories. And not only do we hear about the athletes, so there are other elements, like we met, talked about the opening ceremonies, the pageantry and, and, you know, spectacle of the opening ceremonies, the closing ceremonies. And then there's a bit of culture as well, because we're getting to know the host country. So there are many vignettes about arts, entertainment, architecture, food. So there's a whole lot of elements that go into it that make it a really um, compelling event to watch. And you obviously have a, a passion for the games and the work that you do. Uh, will you share with us a little bit what it means to you to be able to uh, help everyone experience and be a part of the Olympic, Olympic spectacle in spirit and pageantry? And what kind of feedback have you all received by providing Olympic audio description in the past, Olympic and Paralympic audio description? Well, you know, first of all, I know myself and my fellow describers see this as an incredible privilege and a responsibility. And we're really here to serve our audience. That's the only reason we're here. So we take our jobs quite seriously when it comes to what can we do to enhance this experience for our audience. And so, you know, for us, we mentioned the storytelling because it really is a lot about storytelling and the broadcasters uh, that are employed by NBC um, are all great storytellers in their own roles, whether they're hosts or they're color or they're play-by-play or they're reporters and so, you know, we mentioned it was an art description, but it's even more a dance because what we don't ever want to do is trample on or impede the narratives or the stories that the broadcasters are telling us because they, they give good information, they give compelling stories. And so we never want to step on that. But our job is how to dance in and out of that narrative and provide the color, the context, or the perspective that makes that story um, become more meaningful to our audience or makes it, it like I said, it gives it perspective. It, it, it fleshes things out in a way that doesn't happen um, sometimes when people just assume that, well, you can see it. It's right there on TV. I don't need to tell you that, you know, for example, we talk about sometimes even the culture, the scenery and all that, you know, there's a difference between naming something that's Mount Fuji or describing it, you know, a volcanic cone that rises 12,000 feet high, you know, with snow and ice covering it like frosting, you know. Um, so wherever possible, if we can add that kind of detail to something so that we're not just naming it, we're actually describing it, giving it shape and context and color uh, perspective. Um, I feel like that's a lot of what we do. You know, it's all about the details for us. We try to do what our audience does, and that is listen. Listen to the broadcasters. Listen to what's being said. And then, again, try to find ways to dance around them to, uh, again, give perspective, more detail, more color, to enhance what they're saying. 
I am so pleased that we have the opportunity to talk with Norma Jean Wick, who may Norma Jean Wick and Descriptive Video Works, thank you so much for giving us that behind the scenes look at uh, what it's like for the audio describers. And that is not the entire interview. It's just that we have such a packed show for everyone here this evening. If you want to hear the rest of Norma Jean's uh, interview and comments and perspective on audio description at the Olympic and Paralympic Games, please visit the ACB YouTube channel where the full 25 minutes of that interview are available in its entirety. And Clark, to I think Kim. maybe we can uh, can also get the entire interview put on the post-convention podcast of this program so people can hear that as well. So it was a very informative interview and Clark and I have had a really hard time because we've just got so much great content to share with you and we wanted to share it all but when we put it all together we would have had to start at probably four o'clock to, to, today <laughs> to start um, sharing it all with you so we had to make some tough decisions as uh, broadcasters of the evening and so um, it, it, we definitely want you to hear the full interview because uh, Norma Jean and, and also our other um, guests were just great to talk to and learn more about their engagement and their level of skill and the commitment. It's just, again, it's the same theme from what we heard from Tim as Norma Jean takes such pride and feels such a, a, a serious sense of responsibility to deliver the message to us that is accurate and complete so that we will have the most vivid picture we can have in hearing the description. And I think that's just amazing. And during the, the primetime airing of the opening ceremony, which will begin at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, everyone will just stay right where you are and we will have that with audio description for you. You will hear two describers. You will hear Norma as well as her, her partner in audio description crime, Tom. And they are, Kim, they're just, they're like any other partnership, whether it's you know, what my pilot and I had to do on a tandem together, if it's what one of our guests later on here this evening, Lex Gillette, We'll be able to share about working with a guide runner. It, it takes practice to be a, a professional and to be at the, the top of your game in the audio description world. And to be part of a team. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate in teamwork. And really what, what we're accomplishing, whether it's on the running track or ACB, we're always talking about it takes a team. And it really does. Nobody does things all alone. You know, there's got to be a team. And Kim, that's interesting that the way you phrase that, because earlier today I was looking and the International Olympic Committee, uh, the motto has always been faster, higher, stronger, right? And uh, anyone who knows Latin, I'm sure is yelling out what the, the, the three Latin words are, uh, but faster, higher, stronger. They've actually added a fourth 
descriptor. Now it's faster, higher, stronger, together, which is just like ECB's convention, uh, you know, better together wherever we are, right? That's right. And just like you have to be as part of a team together. Uh, no one can be the fastest, uh, you know, except for some of our guests later on, the fastest, <laughs> jump the highest, or be the strongest on their own. And certainly here at ACB, we excel because we all do it together in our advocacy work as part of the ACB community. Uh, we are all better together. Well, speaking of our next guest, um, being the fastest, um, Marla Runyon. She was in the Olympics, um, Paralympics in 96, um, and the Olympics in Sydney in 2000, and in Athens in 2004. Um, she's a runner, and um, she's a, a former colleague of mine at Perkins. You're going to hear a little bit of her story and her journey. So let's run that interview and share our conversation with Marla Runyon, athlete and Olympian. Well, Clark, it's great to have with us on this next segment, Marla Runyon, who is a, an Olympic runner from the Sydney Olympics and a colleague of mine in the past and um, a, for, and a resident of Watertown, just like me. We live about a half a mile apart. So welcome, Marla. We're so happy to have you join us on this portion of our pre-show um, Olympic opening ceremony coverage. Thank you, Kim. It's really um, great to be here. So thanks for having me. So we want to find out a little bit about your journey um, in, in running, because that is um, your your primary um, focus in sport. Um, and most particularly, kind of how you journeyed to the 2000 Olympics as a member of the U.S. Olympic team and what your um, race was and kind of some of the the stories behind it. Now, yeah, I wish we had a lot of time because you actually wrote a book about the whole episode, which um, I've got that information. So I'll share it a little later on in this segment so we can tell people that it's available in an accessible format. But um, yeah, tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to Sydney and yeah. And Athens, I made my second Olympic team in 2004. Um, so sure. I'm happy to share the story. I, I will, I will back up slightly. I promise I will not make this too long of a story, but I, I always like to start with um, the motivation to that drives us or drives an athlete to want to aspire to be in the Olympics. And I was a collegiate track and field athlete back in the late 80s in San Diego. And in 1988, I was sitting about two inches from my television in my little apartment on campus because <laughs> I am visually impaired. So I would sit really, really close to the TV. And I was glued to the 1988 Seoul Olympic Games uh, and especially watching um, Jackie Joyner Kersey in the women's heptathlon. And after watching hours and hours of those Olympic games, I marched right out to the track at San Diego state and went right up to my coach and said, I want to be an Olympian. And that was 1988. And I'm, pretty sure while I could not see the expression on his face, I usually say, I think he might've been 
chuckling a bit at my declaration that afternoon and said something to the effect of, well, that's great, Marla. That's a, we'd all like to be in the Olympics, but that is not always a possibility for everyone. But I was pretty adamant that that was a goal I wanted to set for myself personally. And even if I didn't achieve it, I felt like the pursuit of it was worth, was worth it. And so for 12 years, that was the goal and the dream and the vision for me. I graduated to, from college, graduated from, uh, got out of graduate school in 1994, and then decided to dedicate that effort towards, you know, that goal. And um, it's important to understand how do we, how do you make an Olympic team? Like, how do we choose our Olympic team in track and field in the United States? And the short answer is, First, you must qualify to go to our Olympic trials, which is the national championships. And then once you get to the trials, you also have to have already run what's known as the Olympic standard, which is a time standard that's much, much faster. That's established by the International Olympic Committee in coordination with World Athletics. So you have to have run the time standard to even be be eligible to be a, a contender. And then once at the Olympic trials, and usually the top 36 to 40 athletes in the country will qualify for those trials. You'll run the prelim, a semifinal and a final, and only the top three will make the team. So if you're fourth, you don't make the team. (laughs) Uh, If you have a bad day, you don't make the team. It is really all about performing on the day. Um, And so what I would do is once the Olympic trials, um, the, the schedule would come out, I would find, look up my event and I would write the, t- the date and the time that it was going to happen. Um, and I would literally hit and write it in big black Sharpie and hang it on my wall because everything I did every day was all about that race and that moment. Um, and that's what drove me um, all the way to Sydney. So I competed in the 92 and 96 Paralympic Games. I was a T13 classification, which is athletes with vision impairment. Um, in those days, um, there were not very many events offered. They, they don't have a full menu of events um, for all classes in the Paralympic Games. That is true today as well. Um, but I, I set every record I could set. I won as many medals as I could win. And after 96, I kind of came back to that original you know, goal of mine was I'm going to make a decision that from this point forward, I'm only going to compete against fully sighted athletes and I'm going to set my sights on the 2000 Olympic team. And so from 97 through um, 2000, that was what I, what I um, worked towards. I relocated to Oregon. I got a new coach, a new, a new group to train with. I was not sponsored. So I worked part-time jobs I lived off very little money in a really dumpy apartment, but it was across the street from the running trail. And I, in my mind, if I didn't give it everything I had, I didn't want to look back with regret. You know, I knew that if I didn't make it, I didn't make it, but I needed to know that I had tried and done everything I possibly could to make that team. And, um, made it to the 2000 Olympic trials, which were held in Sacramento that year. I was in the women's 1500 meters. That's a sometimes called the metric mile. So it's three and three quarters laps around the the 400 meter oval track. 
we're running approximately 65 seconds per lap. Um, so it's, if you were to, uh, if you were to convert a 1500 meter time to a mile, it's around a 420 mile or 419 mile is what we're running pace wise. Um, at the Olympic trials, teams are made and lost in tens of seconds. So it is, it is everybody really fighting for that, those top three spots to make the team. And I was one of those, one of those athletes. And, um, on that day, uh, in Sacramento, which was in July of 2000, um, I was, I was running for the third spot. I knew that the first and second, uh, runners were faster than me, had faster personal best than I did, but I was a strong contender for that third spot and kind of played a tactical race somewhat to hold on to that last kick in the last 300 meters of the race. I pulled ahead and remembered coming down that final straightaway. And all I could see was red track. The surface of the Mondo track is usually red. And I usually don't see the finish line, but I know where it is because I've run so many intervals and races in my lifetime. And crossed the line. And I've told this story to only a few people, but, you know, I crossed the line and my name went up on the Jumbotron and 30,000 people in the stands, including my parents, they knew I had made the team, but I actually didn't know. Um, I couldn't see the tr- the jumbotron. I didn't see, couldn't see my name. Um, and in the 1500, it, it was a long enough of a race that sometimes if the pack broke apart, I'd lose track, no pun intended, but I would actually lose track of my positioning sometimes. And I, I hadn't remembered passing uh, one, one other athlete in the race. And I thought maybe I was fourth. So I kind of tried to play it cool. I'm at the finish line and I'm, you know, got my hands on my hips. I'm leaning over, I'm catching my breath and I couldn't stand it anymore. And I literally walked up to an official and said, what place did I get? (laughs) And that's when I was realized that I had actually did finish third and had just made my first Olympic team. Wow. Marla, you mentioned, you know, being a visually impaired athlete, uh, not being able to see the jumbotron and having to check with the official to know where you finished at Olympic trials and not being able to see your coach's expression when you voiced your conviction on wanting to be an Olympian and your also your desire to be an Olympian. But what was it that as an athlete with a visual impairment that made that a, a realistic goal for you? Where did you even get the notion that an yeah. athlete with a visual impairment could aspire to well, be an Olympian? Because, that's a really good question. For me, it was, and I think this is true for most athletes, is like you, when you experience a little taste of success, you kind of reset your new goals. Like you set a goal and then you either meet it or surpass it and you go, oh, and you kind of reset. And you're like, okay, well, if I ran that, maybe I can run this. And for me, I had been competing in a completely different an event prior to 2000. I was a heptathlete, which is where you're doing sprints and hurdles. Believe it or not, I did the hurdles, the javelin shot, throws and jumps. But the heptathlon, ironically, I was 10th in the 96 Olympic trials in the heptathlon. So nowhere near making the team. But what that experience did is it introduced me to the 800 meters. And I ended up in 1996 running the fastest 800 meters by a heptathlete in the United States 
I have a woman, a female, the women do decathlon, men do decathlon. And that, and it was a huge personal best for me when I ran that time, it was a, a two second PR. Um, I, it, I had, I had planned on retiring after that race. I was going to retire after the 96 Olympic trials, but it was that race, that little taste of success. And believe it or not, a coach, a very well-known coach who came up to me after the race and said, you need to be a middle distance runner and you can make the Olympic team. And it was when somebody told me that when somebody saw that potential in me, um, I started to believe it as well. And that coach didn't see me as a blind athlete or a visually impaired athlete. He just saw the athleticism that I put forth when I was competing. And that's what he saw. And when I then relocated to Oregon, found a new coach, that's the environment I wanted to be in. I didn't want to be coached as a visually impaired runner. I wanted to be coached as a world-class runner who just happened to be visually impaired. And so whatever they didn't know about vision loss, I could handle that. I could tell them, I could teach them, you know, if, um, you know, I, I, I was, I didn't want that to be where they, the where they, their, their perspective. I didn't want to be that. That's the um, position they took coached me from. I wanted them to see me pure and simple as an athlete and coach me as an athlete and hold those very, very, very high expectations of me. And, um, and if there was an environment that I had difficulty with visually or, you know, a certain situation, we would work that out together, which, which became, as we all know, living with a vision impairment is like being a constant problem solver every day <laughs> and figuring out how you're going to do the, this thing and the task at hand and running was no different. It was okay. How do we, how are we going to do this one? How are we going to, how are we going to figure out your, how are you going to know your pace if you can't see the clocks and how are you going to keep track of your laps in the 5,000 if you can't see the lap counter? And how do you know what place you're in if you can't, if runners get away from you and you can't see far enough to know who, who's in front of you and how many runners are in front of you. So those were some of the challenges visually that I had to um, contend with when I was competing at the, both the national and international level. So take us a little bit on your uh, fast forward a little bit on your journey to the 2000 Olympics and how that whole experience played out for you. And um, <laughs> Getting there. Um, well, Sydney was just awesome. I we um, the U.S. Olympic track and field team does a training camp. We did a training camp in Brisbane, Australia, about three weeks prior to the games, and then we are all flown into the Olympic Village, um, which is an interesting and very long day. <laughs> um, and you know, just. Here's a, here's a story, you know, all of our luggage is identical because we go through team processing. And so you get all of the same gear and you even get large, you know, bat, gear bags and suitcases and they're all identical. And so everybody has to put their name tag on their bag, but you have to imagine the entire track and field team just, around, you know, lands in the Olympic village. There's no, I can't see my name on my tag. And so, you know, my, I had great teammates and they're like, Hey, Marla, don't worry. We got you. We'll find your bag for you. So um, I loved the fact that I had the, the type of relationship with my teammates where they didn't entirely know what was going on with my vision, but they knew that I, you know, what I, that there were things I couldn't see. And so there were, there were athletes there who were there to like, kind of help me out in those situations. 
Um, the track in, you know, the Olympic Stadium in Sydney was magnificent. I think it was held something like 80,000 uh, spectators. And then there's a warm up track always adjacent to the stadium where we warm up. And then when we're brought in for our first race, we're taken into a tunnel, go through all the gear checks and bib number checks and uniform checks and all shoe checks and all those types of checkpoints and uh, we're held in a, in a, you know, you're in the belly of the Olympic stadium. So you just hear this amazing crowd cheering for whatever race is on the track at that time. And then they lead you out. And it's just like, it's just amazing. Cause you've got this very, very dark tunnel um, kind of in the belly of the stadium. And all you can do is, you know, all I can do is hear and listen to all the sounds, but then you come out into this well-lit, enormous stadium um it's it's like overwhelming but it's so thrilling at the same time um i i have to say that one of the things i did when i would race in the united states is the tracks that i raced on i was very familiar with their um the layout and you know the track is an oval so your your back stretch and your home stretch are straight and two turns and um and so I would, I would be able to find landmarks or know positions of how the stadium was situated around the bleachers were situated on the track to kind of get my orientation when I raced. And I didn't have, didn't really have any challenges with that throughout most of my career. But when I got to Sydney um, and I got into that stadium, we really literally have seconds before the gun goes off. And so there's not a lot of time to get your bearings and kind of feel like, okay, where am I? <laughs> what side of the track am I on and where's the finish? And, and you're also what I described is kind of like running in a fishbowl where both sides of the, of the track are identical. Um, and so there were moments when I was racing in that first round where I'm like, wait a minute, am I in the back stretch? Am I in the home stretch? Mm-hmm. And not having orientation like that is just devastating because everything about racing is your pace and, you're gauging that maximum, you're, you're near hundred percent effort, but you've got to gauge your kick and you've got to, you know, hit your splits in order to, to hit the time to, to advance to the next round. And so even though I had that moment of sort of disorientation, I still made it all the way to the final, um, and ran in the Olympic finals. So I was where I finished eighth, um, eighth in the world, which ain't too bad. That's right. That's <laughs> so for sure really, really, and just an amazing experience. I think if I had, when I think back to it, I think, you know, if I had just even soaked it in a little bit more because, um, you, you think as an athlete, well, I'll be back, you know, and I, I did compete again in 2004, but there was really nothing quite like that first Olympic experience in running in Sydney. So it was kind of amazing. And Marla, here we are on July 23rd. It's the night of the Olympic opening ceremony. Did you march on for the Olympic opening ceremony as part of Team USA? Absolutely, I did. Yes. Um, Can even remember when the track and field team came together in the village to nominate the flag bearer. So each sport, um, each sport for the country, for the United States, had their own meeting essentially to nominate a flag bearer for um, the country. And then eventually all those nominees went up against each other. And I don't know who made the final decision, but um, 
remember that quite well. Um, one of my teammates nominated me because I was the first Paralympian to also make the Olympic team. Um, but we ended up choosing someone else, um, which was fine. Um, I, I will tell, tell you this funny story about the opening ceremonies for athletes. As exciting as it is, you spend hours upon hours on your feet um, being sort of escorted into, you know, getting into, we were, we were actually held in the, um, gymnastic stadium while the opening ceremonies was going on. And then the parade of nations is kind of towards the end. So we sat in the gymnastic stadium with all the other countries, and then we were brought out and I don't know whose idea this was, but I was supposed to wear these navy blue high heel shoes <laughs> and I don't wear high heel shoes. So, um, those did not go on my feet for the opening ceremonies. I actually wore my, um, my sponsored running, actually wore my running shoes underneath this skirt, um, because I had made it all the way to the Olympics and I wasn't going to risk injuring my Achilles, um, wearing high heel shoes for three hours. So, um, I, I just stuck, stuck with my running shoes on opening ceremonies, but remember mar- marching in with my team and my very good friend actually um, at those opening ceremonies, just as I remember the opening ceremonies of the 92 Paralympic Games, which were equally as impressive and uh, significant in my life. So just to have those two moments and quite amazing. So what has Marla Runyon done since the Olympics to pursue running and her dreams and um, career and lately and the last few years? <laughs> sure. Well, I, I currently work for the Boston Marathon. Uh, you know, it's a road race here in Boston. You might have heard of it. <laughs> I think they might have. Uh, yeah. Boston Marathon, of course, one of the most uh, well-known um recognized marathons in the world. Um, and, uh, been with the BAA for four years and so excited to announce and, um, uh, present to the world this October, because we did have to, um, shift the date this year because of the pandemic, but the 20, the 125th Boston marathon will be held October 11th in Boston. And we'll, we will be launching the first ever inaugural para athletics division of the Boston marathon for our athletes, uh, with lower limb impairment run with prosthetics, upper arm impairment, um, upper limb impairment, excuse me, and athletes who are blind and visually impaired. And so this is a competitive division for athletes who have hold a classification, a para-athletics classification to compete for prize money and awards. And it's the first of its kind in a major marathon. I've had tears in my eyes. I've had goosebumps listening to you talk, Marla. But I think our, our audience wants to know, and you know, everyone who's going to see this wants to know, what are you excited about in this year's Olympics and Paralympics? What are the races you're watching? Who are the athletes that you're tuning in for? <laughs> My goodness. So I, I, you know, I competed. And so I, I was a track and field athlete for over 20 years. I just absolutely love track and field. I mean, I did multi-events. Like I said, I did the throws, the jumps, the sprints, and then eventually middle distance running and distance running. So my two events that I made the Olympic team on were the the women's 1500 and the 5,000. So you'll, you can know for certain that I will be watching those races. 
um, glued to the television uh, to watch our American uh, athletes as well as those all across the world um, compete in those two events because those were my events. But equally, I will be glued to the marathon. Uh, I will call out a couple of names at the Paralympic Games, uh, looking to watch Masato Mashishida. She is the current world record holder for T12, and she's a blind marathon runner from Japan. Um, She is the gold medal favorite. So I am really excited to watch her run and cheer for her and cheer her on. She's also, um, if she's not too tired, has agreed to come to Boston. (laughs) So I look forward to her running well in Tokyo and then hopefully welcoming her right back right here to Boston. Um, And then we also have uh, Michael Roger from Australia and he is a um, arm amputee, but he is the only, um, actually, no, he's now the second um, para-athlete to break the 220 barrier in the marathon. He's run 218. He's also the world record holder and world champion. So um, you can't go wrong watching Michael. And um, so those are just a couple athletes I know I'm going to be watching. Well, I we could talk to you for hours and I wish we had more time <laughs> because it's fascinating and, and motivating to just to hear your stories and to hear about others as well, other athletes. So you've given us some great information to keep our eye on um, some of these other athletes and that will be in Tokyo. And for those of you who um, might want to hear a little bit more about um, Marla's story, you can um, check out her book called no finish line, my life as a, um, Let's see. I don't know what the subtitle is. And my Braille display just went flat. So no finish line for sure by Marla Runyon. My life as I see it. Thank you. My life as I see it. I knew you'd remember since you wrote the book. (laughs) So, um, But we have it available in Braille and we have it available in digital audio through the Talking Book program. So if anyone's interested, feel free to reach out to me or to your local cooperating NLS Talking Book Library. And they'll be able to um, connect you with Marla's book. So again, Marla, I want to thank you so much. You brought so much more depth to my understanding of the Olympics. And I hope others feel that way as well. Clark, any final words? Yeah, Marla, thank you so much. And go Team USA. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, go Team USA. Yeah, well, (laughs) I I have to say... um, just also, I just, I'm thrilled to watch, um, country, all athletes from all the countries, to be honest with you. Um, I just find, I just love, as you know, the Olympic games and Paralympic games and so thrilled. Um, number one, thank you, Kim, for, for this opportunity to speak with both of you today, but the coverage that is around on the horizon for our Paralympic athletes, um, they have been, you know, since I've since retired, um, watching them take, take the reins and literally drive the next generation and watching para-athletics evolve. Um, it has been so phenomenal and I'm so proud, um, to be a para-athlete, to be a Paralympian and an Olympian. So I'm going to be so excited to watch both games. So thanks again. Well, Clark,
Oh my goodness, Kim. I've I mentioned I had tears in that video then. I've got tears and goosebumps now. I'm ready to run through a brick wall. How about you? Oh my gosh. Um, it's just incredible what um what she accomplished and, and how she just what she did. It's just amazing to me. And and you know, I admire her and her athleticism and and what she's doing now with the Boston Marathon is is fantastic. So Pretty, pretty terrific yeah, stuff. I uh, definitely paying it forward for the next generation of Olympians and Paralympians to come. Uh, dovetails nicely to what ACB is doing with our Get Up and Get Moving campaign as well. But from one, one Olympian and Paralympian to another Paralympian joining us here live this evening, from Chula Vista, California, Lex Gillette. How are you? I'm fantastic, Clark. How are you? How are you, Kim? I'm great. It's wonderful to have you with us this evening. Uh, it's my pleasure. I, I always joke that Lex is my mom's second favorite Paralympian. <laughs> now that I'm married to a, a Paralympian and world champion, Lex, I think you just got bronze in that race. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I want to I drop another slot. <laughs> So, Lex, you are you're one month out from the Tokyo Paralympic Games. Will you share a little bit with us about what, geez, just briefly about your story? I know some folks are familiar, but others, uh, this is their introduction to you. So just give us a little bit about your background in sport. Totally. I, um, I grew up in, in North Carolina. I could see up until I was eight years old, so born with sight. And when I was eight years old, I started to experience retina detachments which led to a string of 10 operations that I had that one year that I was eight. And after the last operation, doctors said that there wasn't anything that they could do, anything else they could do to help my sight. And they said that I would eventually become blind. So that led to a, a gradual decrease of sight over the next few months to the point where I couldn't see anything. And, uh, you know, as, 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 as you're aware, Clark, you know, we, get connected to some really phenomenal people in life and we have our, our families and different specialists and TVIs, O&M specialists, and, and all of those people helped me to get to this point of uh, just shifting my mindset. And somewhere along the road, I was introduced to, to track and field, specifically in high school, I had a teacher who noticed that I was pretty athletic and uh, he worked with me on a day-to-day -day basis to to get to a point where I felt comfortable with running and also running and jumping. And, uh, you know, the rest, as they say, is, is history. So I've been participating in Paralympic sport for the past, I mean, 2004 is my first games, fresh out of high school and trying to figure out the, the sport. And it's been a beautiful 17 years and I'm looking forward to a month from now being in Tokyo and competing at my fifth Paralympic Games. And it, for those who don't know, Lex is uh, very modest. Not only will this be his fifth Paralympic Games, but he is a world champion, a multi-time uh, Paralympic silver medalist. And oh, by the way, he's the only totally blind person to jump further than 22 feet. So he is also a world record holder as well. I got to brag about you, Lex, if you're not going to do it yourself. That's what I'm here for. Uh, hey, I appreciate it. 
So, Lex, we heard Marla Runyon talking about the opening ceremony uh, that's often held in the Olympic in the Paralympic Stadium, the stadium in which you will be competing. I know this year will be a big departure, but in in Rio, in London, um, in Beijing, what was it like walking through the tunnel into the Olympic and Paralympic Stadium? And what was it like taking the start line? In a Paralympic race. Okay, let me let me set the let me set the scene for you. So when we are going in for the for the ceremonies, opening ceremonies, they are lining up everyone from from Team USA. So you're out there, you're you're chuckling and laughing and cracking jokes, having a good time, and they finally tell you that it's it's our moment to walk in, and that's when the anticipation it, it gets to the, the levels are, are rising, and you are feeling on the inside a lot of excitement, exhilaration, invigoration. You're energized. You're like, oh, I've trained four years for this moment in time. And you're walking, you're walking, you're walking. You're going through that tunnel. And at that moment, it naturally becomes quiet. I think that anticipation is at an all-time high. You can hear people slightly talking, might be whispering a little bit. And eventually you get to this point where... You're at the opening of what we'll call the, the just the mouth of the stadium. And from there, as someone who's blind, you feel the entire facility just open up massive, feel the heat of all of the people inside of the stadium. You can feel the just the, the excitement in all of your teammates on your left, your right, front, back, and you're hearing all of the music, the sounds, and you hear the announcer over the PA, just, oh, Team USA is marching in. It's just a lot, lot going on in there. And when you talk about competition, it's a similar type of situation where you go into the, the call tent where all of the athletes are required to go prior to competition. And once everyone is ready to head out to the stadium, you line up and the official escorts you and your guides out to the stadium. So you're walking through that same tunnel where now you have athletes from other countries and they're speaking different languages. Um, not, not really aware. You might not be aware of what people are saying, but you can tell in their voice that, all right, it's, it's go time. And we're, we're walking through that tunnel and we get to that same point at which you feel the stadium open up and you can hear that music over the loudspeakers. You can hear the PA announcer. You can hear friends and family inside of the, the stands screaming. You might hear some, some people in the stands who are screaming against you. But um, yeah, once you're out there on the actual competition field itself, you have to lock in all of those butterflies and and the pressure that we sometimes feel you got to um, get into the get into the zone and get ready to compete. And Lex, I know that you are a, a very big sports fan, not only of track and field, uh, but other sports as well. So what are, I guess, what made you choose this path? We, well, we, we participated in this fitness test in, in high school and, and one of the activities was standing long jump. So I, I was just naturally good at, at standing long jump. And from there, I had my, 
my visually impaired teacher who had told me about the Paralympics and he told me about the potential to travel the world and break records and, and win medals. And you tell some, you tell a 14, 15 year old kid that it's like, all right, well, where can I sign up? And, um, and so he took me down to the track and, and showed me everything about the sport. And although it was difficult in the beginning, I had him there and he believed in me so much that in a lot of ways I began to believe in myself and I began to see what was what was possible. And, uh, you know, from that point, it was Monday through Friday training together. And, and he helped me to to uh, get to my first games. You are truly um, a very good with words. I mean, you're so descriptive about the, you know, what you've experienced. And uh, I mean, it just, I feel like I was practically there the way you were telling your story. So it's, um, you know, your next career, you're going to be just as good as your athletic career in, <laughs> in communication or writing or something like that, because you are a true communicator. Oh, yeah, I definitely want, you know, try to bring people into the environment, you know, I want to make you feel like, like you're living vicariously through, through me, you know, it's, just, it's an amazing time. So, yeah. And, and Lex, to that point, you know, we, we grew up in there, there wasn't coverage of the, the Paralympic Games, um, you know, we had to find our sports idols you know, whether it's football, basketball, or Olympians, right? For me, it was uh, Christy Yamaguchi, and I'm a little bit taller. She's a little bit better, but, you know, we'll toss the rest of that out. What do you think it means for the generations of athletes to come, those, those future Paralympians, to have audio description for the Olympics and the Paralympic Games? I think it's huge because you they now have that exposure to athletes who live a similar experience as them and, and athletes who may come from a similar background or from a you know a similar culture and and it, it it hits differently when you're when you're growing up and you see someone who may be uh, experiencing the same uh, type of, of uh, eye condition that you have and so when they see that you're out and about and you're doing amazing things on and off the field of play they see someone who, oh, I can be like this person. Let me learn more about them. What are they doing within the sport? What are they doing to get better as an athlete? What are they doing outside of the sport? And, and I think that's really huge because we all know that athletics is, you have a finite amount of time that you'll, you know, you, you'll be able to spin the bike for, uh, spin the bike really fast for a period of time. You'll be able to run fast for a period of time. And, and, and after a while, you know, and unfortunately, you have to uh, step away. And the beautiful thing in that is knowing that we have kids who will come up behind us and who will take that baton and you know, they'll be able to, to train and compete just as hard. And, and hopefully the goal is to, to get them to, to compete just as well as you do and, and, and much better. Well, Lex... We want you to stay with us um, and kind of lead us into the opening ceremony. But now I'm really, really pleased to um, to share um, an award presentation that I think is especially meaningful for for you and for Clark. 
Um, the audio description project of the American Council of the Blind gives a series of awards. And in the category of achievement in audio description in museums, parks, and visitor centers, the 2021 um, Outstanding Award for Excellence in Audio Description was presented to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So we want to share with you um, the presentation itself and the acceptance for the museum. So let's run that interview now. Hi, this is Tyler Carter, two-time Paralympian and Alpine skier. On behalf of the entire U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum team, we are honored to receive this award. We take great pride in ensuring everyone that comes through these doors experiences Team USA's Olympic and Paralympic history. We hope that all guests leave experiencing the values of the Olympics and Paralympics. We look forward to welcoming you to Olympic City USA soon. And are we back? Yes, we are. All right, so that was for the Olympic and Paralympic Museum. Lex, we are fortunate to have Robert Brady from the Olympic and Paralympic Museum on a session about accessibility museums earlier this week. And he said that that is, that is our museum. Uh, folks can go there. You can interact with the accessible user interfaces. You can get a lanyard with a credential, much like Lex will have in Tokyo. And once you set your profile, uh, the RFID tags, uh, the radio frequency identification tags within your personal credential will carry your accessibility settings. So if you are a screen reader, if you want audio description, you're able to walk up to an exhibit and it will automatically read your credential and load your personal accessibility settings. I was there in September of 2020. And of course, I had to look up my man, Lex Gillette, and see his accolades in the system there. Lex, how does it feel to have uh, it's the house that Lex built? No, nah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, you know what, at the end of the day, I'm just proud to be a part of it. There's so many amazing yeah. Olympians and Paralympians inside of that, that museum and yeah, it's just uh, it's just an honor to be a part of the group, and it and it's going to keep growing. Uh, Lex, one more thing for you. So you and I, we were hanging out a, a couple of weeks ago. We were looking at the Audio Description Project website, uh, www.adp.acb.org. And what are what will you be doing leading up to competition? How will you be getting yourself pumped? you know, in the days leading up to com competition? One of my, so I got a couple movies that I typically like to check out prior to competition. One of them is Dark Knight. And the other one is Remember the Titans. I will probably, I checked out Remember the Titans prior to, uh, prior to our trials that just happened a month ago in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So um, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll, get with the dark night in the in the lead up to Tokyo but 
either one of those, I'm certainly going to make sure that I can get on and, and have those movies described because I've never actually checked out either one of those with audio description. And I would certainly love to because the beauty of audio description is having those moments where there's there's gaps, those moments where it's just the, like those very cinematic, high level artistry moments of the movie where there's not any dialogue. And so to have someone that describes that to helps you connect the dots, to be able to understand more of the film, that's that's crucial. Like that's critical for, for all of us to understand the uh, the movie. And so I'm going to bring up one of those and see what else I can learn about these movies that I've, I've just listened to so many times. But each, you know, each time there's something new that I learn. And I know with audio description, that's going to bring it in full, full spectrum for me. And those are both available with AD if you search the audio description website. And Kim, much like movies, how uh, audio description provides you know, verbal descriptions of those key visual elements, I know that's what's going to be getting us so excited for the Olympics and Paralympics, having the audio description available, not only for the competition, but the parade of nations, the opening ceremony that we'll see here in a bit. Just got a, another guest to join us. And Kim, why don't you introduce that guest? Sure. Thanks, Clark. It's, um, it's certainly my pleasure to welcome someone who's not a stranger to the blindness community, um, who's advocated for audio description and access throughout his career, and in fact, received the, the um, Distinguished Career Achievement Award from the Audio Description Project this year as well. Um, Tom Lekowski, Vice President of Accessibility at Comcast. Tom, we're so glad to have you join us. Hi, Kim. It's always good to be with you and, and Clark. And thanks again for the uh, the, the honor uh, that that I received here that you just mentioned. Um, but really, it's it's not me. Um, it's the team of folks that make it happen. I I'm the one who gets to talk about it and you know, um, try to coordinate with folks like you to make sure people know about it. But, um, you know, it, it takes a village to, to get something like the uh, Olympics and Paralympics described and some of the other things that, that NBC has stepped up to do and the Xfinity side to make sure that it gets to our customers. So um, happy to accept that award on behalf of everyone at Comcast NBC Universal that uh, makes all of this possible. And I can tell you that, uh, and I'm sure you've seen it in some of the conversations that you've had this week uh, via email with some of the, with some of the team that uh, they're excited and, and really happy to bring it, bring the audio description in the Olympics and Paralympics uh, in a more inclusive way to, to the blind community. And well, Com Comcast is really um been an absolute leader. And in fact, Tim Canary, the uh, vice president in engineering at NBC, really um, strongly referenced the leadership and the commitment of Comcast and how that really set the stage for NBC Universal to really embrace audio description. And, and listening to Tim, it was quite clear. Carl Clark and I both recognized the the commitment that he has to quality and his team to providing the highest quality audio description in the broadcast experience. So that was really, um, truly 
um, uh, an attestation to um, to Comcast and the work of you and your team. Well, Tim's great, and Monica Downer is another one who's going to be supervising. Certainly, uh, you know Norma and and other you know who, who you interviewed and and other describers that will be there from Descriptive Video Works. Uh, you know the engineering folks that make sure the uh, the mix is right and. You know, it's just uh, amazing uh, when you think of, you know, the thousands of people that are involved in the Olympics production alone, you know, some back here in Stamford, Connecticut, others in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, some in, you know, other parts of the country and obviously over in Tokyo. Um, but somehow it magically comes together. And when 7.30 hits tonight, uh, we'll be on the air and and off they go and, you know, I'll be uh, I'll be watching here with you and and just really excited the fact that this is going to I think going to be the what maybe third Olympics third consecutive Olympics that uh, has had audio description and obviously closed captioning has been there but even there the the, the team is expanding uh, on, on the website and offering, you know, even more closed captioning than ever before and, and expanding the Paralympics coverage in general. Um, and, you know, we don't want to forget that, uh, that content's going to be available, uh, a lot of it with audio description on the NBC sports network. So NBCSN and the Olympic channel. And we'll have to make sure when we get, get into August, we, we communicate that as well. Absolutely. And Tom, this is not only uh, available for Xfinity or Comcast customers, right? This is Absolutely NBC not. broadcast. This yeah. is your favorite favorite cable networks. This is NBCOlympics.com. So it's it's open and available to everyone uh, nationwide with audio description. And that's a great point, Clark. Yeah, this is an NBC broadcast. So what we've committed to for the Olympics is that all of NBC's primetime coverage, so that's the opening ceremony, you know, the primetime coverage of the competitions themselves, and then finally the uh, closing ceremony, all will have audio description. So if you catch your local NBC station over the air with an antenna, uh, you will find the description on the secondary audio program channel, and you'll you know, obviously navigate the settings of your TV to, to locate it. Um, but if you're an Xfinity customer, you'll find it through your set-top box or a Charter customer, Cox customer, uh, you know, Fios, you know, uh, Dish, you know, you name it, DirecTV. Uh, it's it's all there. What we want people to know, though, is um, obviously, you know, sometimes description has its challenges. <laughs> Right. And, and getting the, the audio, um, people finding it or it's not working in one market, but it's working in, in another market. Uh, you know, Kim and I have had many conversations like that. And sometimes we have to chase these things down. And so there's a hashtag um, NBC Olympics A11Y uh, that if you're not getting the audio description uh, over the next two weeks um, and then again during the Paralympics, uh, well, for, for the next two weeks, use NBC Olympics A11Y. That's the hashtag. And then for the Paralympics, it would be NBC Paralympics A11Y. Um, and that's where we have people monitoring that hashtag on Twitter. And um, we will uh, work to ensure that uh, we, we 
get whatever issue it is resolved as quickly as possible. So, and, and the other thing is with that hashtag, we wanna hear feedback, good and bad. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? Um, the describers really want the feedback. The team at NBC really uh, enjoys hearing from, from the audience as well. So we thought, thought that was the easiest way for, for some folks. We know that not everybody has Twitter, but I know we have a great community here at ACB and I'm sure uh, friends uh, will be happy to post whatever feedback you have. And certainly the leadership here has my contact information. I uh, can't run too far. So um, we got you covered, but we do want to hear if something's not working right, we want to try and get it resolved. That's great, Tom. And like you said, uh, folks can always <laughs> message the audio description project or uh, give ACB a call or send us an email if you're not on Twitter or social media and we will be happy to pass along that feedback for you. Tom, I know that you've started a, a workout routine with a trainer here lately, um, but now you've got a, a Paralympian, a Tokyo Paralympian in the house. Do you have any questions for Lex here as we get started? Yeah, you know, you guys are like, a, you know, Lex, uh, you know, I did a sprint triathlon in 2016, and I know, you know, the rigorous training Tell me a little bit about, you know, what your training is going to be like leading up to Tokyo over the next month. You know what? Right now, we are really just trying to dial everything in. So um, I think all of the hard work has been, it's all been done. Uh, so the, over these next three to four weeks, I am going to be focusing on maintaining my speed making sure that power is still there making sure that on the weight room front on the strength and conditioning front that I am staying explosive, staying powerful. So, you know, it could be some, some power cleans. It could be some, some hang cleans or squats or step ups. It could be squat jumps on the track itself, doing some uh, 30 meter flies or 100 meter repeats, trying to make sure that I'm in the best shape possible. And then also that includes making sure that I'm staying away from the the fries and the burgers and all of those <laughs> other things that could that could slow me down. So it's a, a lot of things that you have to be mindful of. But when you have a gold medal on the line, you will do absolutely anything to get that. So I will forego the French fries, which I gave up <laughs> on January the 1st. So, like a uh, cheetah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. compete on August. The, I compete on August the 27th. So rest assured, August the 28th. You'll be having some fries. <laughs> oh, it's, it's going to be a buffet line. Just yeah. all French fries. <laughs> McDonald's yeah. right there in the village. Every, anybody who you, yeah, any, any, any brand. I just got to have them all. Yeah. Well, you guys put well, me to shame. Lexi. I'm going to be an expert at uh, running the remote control and watching the Olympics and listening to the audio description because <laughs> <laughs> that'll be my talent. And Kim, it's almost time. It's almost time. We're almost there. It. We've got one more video. We have the U.S. Association of Blind Athletes with some more athletes to watch in Tokyo. Our men's and women's national goalball teams, the women believe trying to defend their title and the men trying to reach uh, get back on the top step of that podium so folks stay tuned again Lex and Tom thank you so much for joining us here live um, thank you to everyone that was part of this broadcast and this program and don't get up and get moving right now sit tight we've, we've right. got the opening ceremonies with audio description coming and then we can get up and get moving after that be a part of our watch party. It'd be great. <laughs>
Thanks for having me. A goalball court, a white woman, Molly Quinn. Good evening. My name is Molly Quinn, CEO of the United States Association of Blind Athletes. As we all look to rebound from the effects of the pandemic and resume or increase our fitness levels, United States Association of Blind Athletes is proud to support the American Council for the Blind's Get Up and Get Moving campaign. Our vision is for every American who is blind and visually impaired to lead a healthy lifestyle by actively participating in sports, recreation, and physical activity. The Get Up and Get Moving campaign is a fantastic way to raise awareness about the harmful effects of a sedentary lifestyle and the numerous benefits of committing to a life of physical activity. Paralympian strength. Like many of you, the Paralympic athletes on our USA men's and women's goalball teams were forced into confinement last year due to the pandemic. While they learned to train and maintain their fitness levels on their own, they were also hit with the news that the Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games were to be postponed for an entire year. The dreams and goals that they had worked so hard for would require another full year of dedication. Our goalball athletes had to recommit themselves to 12 more months of training while putting other life events on hold. But something remarkable happened during this extra year of training. Our USA goalball teams saw the hand they were dealt as a unique situation. Instead of lamenting over another year of training and self-sacrifice, They seized it as an opportunity to become better, and they've done just that. And now it's my pleasure to introduce the teams to you now. Blindfolded goalball players in action. The USA men's goalball team for the Tokyo Paralympic Games. Daryl Walker, Jacksonville, Florida. 2016 silver medalist. Third Paralympic Games. Bald and bearded black man. Tyler Marin, Coral Springs, Florida. Two-time Paralympic medalist. Fourth Paralympic Games. Shaven, white man with dark hair. John Chusku, Commerce Township, Michigan. 2016 silver medalist. Second Paralympic Games. A white man kicks high. Callahan Young, Irwin, Pennsylvania. First Paralympic Games. White man with red hair and beard. Matt Simpson, Smyrna, Georgia. 2016 silver medalist. Second Paralympic Games. A white man with dark hair. Zach Bueller, Huntington, Indiana. First Paralympic Games. A bearded black man. The USA women's goalball team for the Tokyo Paralympic Games. Lisa Tchaikovsky, Boonton, New Jersey. Three-time Paralympic medalist in goalball. Sixth Paralympic Games. A red-haired white woman. Amanda Dennis, Peachtree City, Georgia. 2016 bronze medalist. Third Paralympic Games. The white woman smiles away. Mindy Cook, Columbus, Ohio. First Paralympic Games. White with blonde hair and glasses. Mary By Hooking. Salt Lake City, Utah, 2016 bronze medalist, second Paralympic Games. Asian with light hair. Eliana Mason, Beaverton, Oregon, 2016 bronze medalist, second Paralympic Games. White with long hair and glasses. Asia Miller, Portland, Oregon, three-time Paralympic medalist in goalball, sixth Paralympic Games. A white woman, arms outstretched. Against the U.S. flag, letters in silver, USA 2020 Paralympic goalball team. So as I get this opportunity to be here with you today... I'm here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the home of the USA goalball men's and women's team at the Olympic and Paralympic training site, Turnstone Center. What an incredible facility. And our teams are ready. 
News footage. U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Tokyo Olympic and Paralympic Games are set to play in the Paralympic Games. U.S. Association of Blind Athletes honor of the Tokyo Olympic and Paralympic Games. The moniker that we've started to say now it's finished the job. More USA men's and women's national goalball teams. They're all. To represent Team USA. In goalball games, blindfolded players hurl a large blue ball. On a quest to bring home the gold. Now you can join the movement. A woman defender, another woman, tosses the ball. A coach with young players. Join us in supporting the next generation of Paralympic athletes. Goalballers grin. Players face us. And provide more opportunities for the blind or visually impaired. The athletes raise their heads toward us. A woman stretches her arms wide. Another Paralympian blows a kiss to spectators. The woman's team players join hands and raise their arms. Opportunities that prove anything is possible. An official places a medal around a player's neck. The countdown is on. Join the team, donate to the campaign, or share your support. Sign up at usaba.donordrive.com. United States Association of Blind Athletes, where Olympic and Paralympic journeys begin. With just over a month until the flame is lit in Tokyo for the Paralympic Games, your USA men's and women's goalball teams are revving up for the competition that awaits them. Two American flag logos, one with the Olympic rings below, the other with swirls in red, blue, and green.